Welcome to the Balance Blueprints podcast, where we discuss the optimal techniques for finances and health, and then break it down to create an individualized and balanced plan. I'm your host, Justin Gaines, here with my co-host, John Prober. In this episode, we talk about the basics of the tax forms, how big your refund should be, and how to maximize that refund. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. I just want to take a point to say that I'm not an accountant, I'm not a CPA, and you should consult a tax professional about your specific tax information. These are just guidelines and overviews and should be used for educational purposes only. The other thing that needs to be taken into consideration is your taxes. You know, a lot of a lot of people, because they're only looking at the accumulation, they're looking to be able to put away as much as possible now and lower their tax burden today instead of looking at what their taxes are going to be in retirement. When I think about taxes, the only thing I think about is, am I putting zero or one? And I still don't even know what to do there, (laughs) you know, I'm doing a job. So when you say, are, you know, are they thinking about taxes throughout the year? Are they just thinking about, are they tax reacting? So what does it look like if someone's thinking about their taxes throughout the year? And I haven't even, I think I'm a little better of like, yeah, I want to think about what I do now for my tax return so I don't get screwed there, but I'm not thinking about my taxes for 30, 60 years, you know? So what's that? So for for the average individual, the average individual is a, an employee, right? So they're not they're not a business owner. They're not they don't have all these complicated portions of the tax law. Ultimately, there's thousands and thousands of pages of tax law. There's less than a hundred or around a hundred that apply to personal taxes. And so I'll put a, a quick disclaimer that I'm not an accountant or a CPA. So I'm only talking about the things that I know and the things that I do for my personal stuff and and my personal family members. But the things that I look at when evaluating taxes for somebody who's in a employment situation, they have generally stable income. They know what they're going to be making each paycheck that may fluctuate here and there due to overtime and, and elements like that. But like you said, filling out those applications at the beginning of your tax year or the beginning of your employment and evaluating and knowing what those tax forms are. You know, when you're filling out your W-2s, your W-4s and those employment paperwork, which is what you're talking about when you say, I only think about zeros and ones, you're answering there, how many dependents do you have? So how many people on your tax return rely on you for income? So in your situation, it's going to be zero. Now, generally speaking, you should answer those truthfully. You should answer those exactly how it is where some people may not answer them truthfully they may say they have more dependents so if you put a if you say you have one or two dependents when you really have zero what's going to end up happening is you're going to have less taxes taken out of your paycheck but you're going to more it's more likely that you will owe taxes at time of taxes being due on april 15th mm-hmm. so the people who do that generally are individuals that feel that they can that they're a better steward of their money than the government is. And so they want to pay taxes back when taxes are due. They don't want a large refund. And generally, I tell most of my clients, if we're sitting down and we're putting together a plan and executing on a plan, you will fall into that category where you feel you're a better steward of your money than the government is. And you'll want to either pay in a little bit or get a small tax return. We never want, I never want any of my clients getting a large tax return. Because if you got a large tax return, that means that on April 15th, you're getting back a portion of your money that you paid in on January, in January, from the prior year. So if we're paying our taxes for 2023, we're paying those in April of 24. But I'm getting back money that I paid in in January of 23. 
So 16 months has passed. If you take the, you know, if you're taking money and putting it into even just a Roth IRA on a ETF basis of the S&P 500, the S&P 500 for this past year is up around 18%. So for every dollar in taxes that you pay the government, you're getting a dollar back of overpayment. But if you had taken that dollar and put it into the stock market, it would turn it would it would have turned into around a dollar and eighteen cents right. over the last year. So you gave up eighteen cents in order for you to not have to worry about so much your budgeting and your planning, so that if you did have to pay in, you could have just paid in. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, even if you have to pay in a hundred dollars at the end of the year, this wouldn't be ideal. But if you had to pay in a thousand dollars at the end of the year, if you knew that you were ready for that. Now, if you were putting into a Roth, this wouldn't work, but if you had it in just a regular investment account and you had access to that, you could then sell off whatever you need to sell off if you didn't have the cash in your six months reserves, which is where I would prefer to come from. But right. we're, getting, we're getting deep into the nuances here of where the yeah. money should come from. But ultimately, if you, if you make it so that you're not getting a large tax return, you can then invest the difference mm-hmm. of what you're paying in there and you would be able to get that rate of return. And so right. even if you have to pay the money back in 16 months, you've still made 18 cents. Now, even if you flash forward and say it's not 16 months, it's really only six months of it. Well, you've still made nine cents. Hmm. So, you know, even even if you even if it's only one month, you've still yeah. made over a penny on that. And the IRS hasn't given you a penny. And ultimately, when the IRS gives you back that money, you had inflation, which was decreasing your money. So even though they're giving you a dollar back, it was decreased by current inflation rate around five and a half percent. They're really only giving you ninety four and a half cents back mm-hmm. because of inflation. And right. so it's one of those things that a lot of people think and want a high tax return. But realistically, a high tax return means that you were mismanaging your money and you were giving it to the IRS and the government right. to manage. Because all that is for people is it feels like free money because, like you said, they just think, okay, I have to pay my taxes, then they forget about it. They're not managing their money. So it feels like, oh, I'm getting extra money when really, no, you're, you're just getting the money that you spent back. And if you were managing your money properly, you could have actually gotten more. So it's really that misconception. We, I saw it a lot in like the food pantry world, you know, when tax return season came back, it was, it was kind of tough because unfortunately the clients that use the food pantry are usually ones that aren't managing their money the best. And whether that's because they just weren't taught well or not. And then, you know, you'll get a tax return and it was like, oh, payday, which not really. And then it would get spent on stuff, which is almost even worse. Because if you do get a high tax return, I imagine you should probably use it wisely. You shouldn't be in a spot where you're relying on that. Because a lot of clients also do rely on that, that we had. Not like clients we work with, clients at the food pantry relied on that as like, oh, I'm expecting income there. So that makes sense. You want to manage it right. And then... Just kind of to give people, I just want to kind of see what you think about this. Like, what is a good range? So say, say I don't want a headache. I don't, I want to just do the best I can. I may not look into all the investments, but like, okay, I want to get money back. So $0 to what should be good. And once I go over that, maybe I should start thinking, okay, I should either file different or do something different. And if I'm losing, you know, how much money then again how bad you know what's that range there right so i'm going to back up just quickly because i think you brought up a good point that i want to emphasize here which is Mm -hmm. you had mentioned quickly whether it was a matter of they weren't 
educated properly or not. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't want anything that I'm saying to come off as like judgmental or even if we're saying, you know, individuals that are in a position where they need to go to a food pantry to get stuff. The reason they're in that financial position, well, I'm not saying it's not completely their fault. The system itself has failed them and they haven't been given the financial education. And the hardest thing for either one of us when we're educating clients is the fact that our clients don't know. And even ourselves, we don't know what we don't know. And it's why we're constantly continually educating ourselves and expanding our knowledge base is because we don't know what's out there that we don't know is out there. And so most individuals do not get any financial education. Most people are financially educated by their parents or whoever raised them, which can either be a really, really good thing or a really, really bad thing. Because ultimately what you're doing is you're compounding the problem or if it's not a problem, you're compounding the success because if you have somebody who's really good with their money, that's teaching somebody about money, then they're doing really good with their money. And as they learn from other people very slowly, they'll be able to exponentially grow that. The same happens in the inverse though. If you have somebody who's really poor with their money and teaches their kids to be poor with their money, as they learn things, typically what they're learning, if it's good things are completely contrary to what they've been taught. And so they reject them and think they're crazy and just don't consider them at all, or it's in line. And because you have a non-ideal financial outlook or financial education, the things that do align end up pushing you further down that hill. And so you end up just compounding the, the problem that way. So, you know, I want, I want to bring that back that a lot of this stuff isn't talked about, isn't discussed, and you have to dig down and find somebody that you trust that will educate you. Because the other thing is, is there's the financial vampires out there that prey on those individuals that are in those positions where they know that they don't have a good financial education. And so they step in and they say, oh, let me let me make a sale here and sell them something that isn't going to get them to a good distribution at retirement and a good position next year or five years down the road. And that's the key piece is, you know, don't be educated by one person, be educated by multiple and go down that road. Yeah, dude, it's, it's, you, you replace a couple words with everything you, you were just saying, and it's exactly the same in the health industry. You know, it's, it's, they say, I think there's a lot of research that shows zip code is way more of a determinant on how healthy you are than it was some other factor. But you know, the point of that being is, you know, there's usually more wealthy areas and less wealthy areas. And, you know, we would like to think that everyone has an equal chance because you're going to go to school and the system is going to teach you, okay, this is how you be healthy. This is a... in high school. It's not even that they're teaching you the wrong stuff. They're really not even teaching you anything about health. You know, we're not talking about how food impacts does what to do there. Same with financials. You know, it's, it's every podcast we've, we've done. It's just like, oh, that's why we started it. Because are you talking about the health industry or are you talking about the financial industry? Because right. it's so similar. It's it's just, yeah, it's tough. It's sad. If you're raised in a family or environment where they weren't that wealthy, so they look at wealthy people and rich people and not the best view. Um, and for whatever the reason that may be that they view them, but that's distilled into you. And I just think what you brought up is important. Well, on that point, though, so psychologically, when you, when you develop that pathway that neural pathway in your brain of they're rich i don't like them or even if you're in an unhealthy position they're really fit i don't like them yeah. you well you start disassociating that with your brain 
And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Your brain will reject anything that's going to get you to be similar to the person you dislike. Yeah, that's and what so they're saying. You don't like fit people and you don't like really healthy people or really wealthy people. You're never going to absorb and retain the information that'll create the lifestyle habits to get to those places simply because you've trained your brain to reject anything that goes down that pathway. And we're not saying this is obvious. Like this could be deep internal, you know, subconscious thoughts because of how you were raised and signs that you've picked up when, you know, it's not like you're walking around saying, you know, I hate that person, but there's just that feeling that you were brought up of, you know, this isn't, we just don't have, you know, likes for these people because right. they and have I, what I, I don't say that's what we are saying is that it's not obvious. We're not saying that right. it is obvious. We're saying the exact opposite, that it is not obvious. It's something that's ingrained with you from childhood yeah. and, and developing over, over the long period of time. But if there's things in your life that aren't lining up, aren't making sense, then, then those, that potentially is, is the reason for it, is that you just have something subconsciously baked into your conscience yeah. that drives you towards something. But to get back to your tax question of what's the sweet spot, my recommendation with all of my clients is accurately put it in there. Put in what you accurately are supposed to be doing and then see where you're at. When you're an employee, it's very tough. You really only have that dependence checkbox and number to play with in order to adjust this. So you really just want to make it accurate. And then because most of our government systems are so messed up and inefficient, you're going to end up with whatever happens down the line. And while that's the worst situation to be in financially, unfortunately with our taxes that if you're just a W2 employee, that's what you fall into. But, Which most people are. Right. But the sweet spot for me is I want you to be plus or minus a hundred dollars. I want us to be in that range. You know, yes. once we start, and that, you know, it's a target, right? So if we go outside of that, once we start hitting 500, that's when I start to say like, okay, we really need to evaluate this. If you do your tax returns and you're at, you're paying in 200, you're getting 200 back or 300. Honestly, it's not worth your time mm. to go through the headache of reaching out to your HR department and updating these forms, unless you have a very good HR department and that's going to take you less than an hour or an hour, then it's worth your time. But generally speaking, there's probably more inefficiencies in your financial plan that we can tackle that'll be a much more efficient use of our time right. than focusing in on this. So my big takeaway on this is fill out the forms accurately and properly. And if you don't know what that looks like for you, talk to your HR department. Your HR department should be trained in this. If your HR department isn't, reach out to one of our social media platforms and, and I can give you the answer within like a 10 minute conversation. I can literally text you five to six questions and be able to accurately tell you how many dependents you have. I think I even filled mine and we'll move on after this, but I filled mine out right this last year working at the food pantry. I, you know, zero dependents. I got back though. Like it was like $1,200. So it was. So, but you were, so, and so here's why that happened though. So the calculation the IRS is using is, it relies on a lot of assumptions. Mm -hmm. The key ones are that your income is not going to change and mm -hmm. that you're being paid at that pay frequency consistently throughout the entirety of the year. 
So if you have an employment that doesn't last the entire time period or you get a raise or a decrease in income, that's also going to drastically impact how your financials play out. Because the assumption was you were going to make this income until the end of the year. And so if that doesn't end up being the case and you end up stopping that employment or getting a raise or decreasing in pay, then that starts to become an issue. So say someone, because we just talked about how I got a pretty large tax return. What's a smart way to use that money instead of just spending it freely? How we're going to use it is going to be directly impacted by how your financial picture looks. So for your specific situation, we would do very different things than what we might do for the average individual because you don't have credit card debt. You don't have hardly any loans. You do have some student loans, but you don't have very many other loans. And so typically what I would tell somebody to do is The knee-jerk reaction is, I just got a lot of money back. Let me go take a vacation. Let me go spend it. Let me go have a a lavish experience. Which somebody in your situation who's in a solid financial position, doesn't have a lot of debts, has a very healthy budget, plenty of cash flow, you could do that. And there wouldn't be any issue with that. I would tell you to step back and let's have we maxed out our Roth IRA? Let's put our, let's max out the Roth if we have it. Let's put it into an investment account for retirement because you don't have the liabilities and the debts to pay off. Now, if you take the average individual with consumer debts, car payments, lots of loans, the, that individual, we're going to look at what's their highest interest rate for their debt. And whatever the loan is that has the highest interest rate, ideally, we would take 100% of that return and, and put it towards that. And so it's not the Dave Ramsey approach of what has the smallest balance. It's what has the highest interest rate. Because even if it's a low balance with a high interest rate, if we can knock out that account, say it's a credit card and you're getting charged 25%, you're going to be way further ahead than you would be knocking out. Say you have a car payment and it's 3% interest. doesn't make sense to lower that because we're not saving as much on interest. We want to knock out the larger interest payments first and then go into the other category. Because that gets into, you know, when we're clearing out debts, we want to focus on highest interest rate first, lowest interest rate last. Because if we can make a higher rate of return on investments, then we just want to ride the coaster out for the debt, pay it down with the payments, and invest the difference instead of putting extra payments. But if generally speaking, if your interest rates are over 7%, you want to knock those out. You want to get rid of those. But if they're below 7 Typically, you can invest the difference and and you're going to be further ahead in the long run. But that's how I would use it is look at your specific financial picture. If you have debts, let's use it all to clear out some of those. If you aren't in a debt loaded position and you have a healthy budget, you don't have a lot of debts or you have no debts, taking it and buying something lavish or investing it or doing one of those things is perfectly acceptable and the way to go. But you can leverage it in a way to get you a bump up in your financial position if you do have debts and you use it to clear out your highest interest rate. All right. So that makes sense. So for the average individual, when we say average because unfortunately most people are, are in a lot of debt circumstance wise, how the system's set up, but use it to pay off your debt, the highest interest. And then I know you mentioned, so say if someone's not in that position, I think this kind of brings up a, another big question that a lot of people have because say your big tax return is around $1,500, like, you know, we could just say that. A lot of people probably wonder, even if it's not a tax return, but they're saying, man, I have $1,500. I don't know where to start. I'd like to invest. I know you mentioned your Roth. 
do you have anything else that you would say like $1,500 if they didn't want to take a vacation or someone just has it? Any other good starting points of what, you know, turning that into something? My recommendation would be the Roth first. If you're not maxing out your Roth IRA, that's where you want to go and, okay. and put it first. And that's simply because it's the lowest barrier of resistance. It's, you can set it up very quickly, very easily. And it has the it has one of the best distributions of income in retirement for what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And so, and ultimately it's a tax return. So you've already paid the taxes on it. And depending on when you filed your taxes, if you filed them, you know, if you filed your taxes before the end of the year, before that very last deadline, you could push it into the previous year and, and make it happen that way. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to work with your accountant to make sure you line that up on your tax return. You don't negatively impact anything, but all things aside, you should be able to pivot that properly. And that's going to give you the best distribution income. The other options are 7702 plans. Those have much more resistance. We talk about them further in another another podcast mm-hmm. but or another episode. So that's another good one. However, there's more hurdles that you have to go through in a lengthier process to get that in place. But if you know you have the money there, that's a good option as well. You can also, if you're not used to investing, I have a client right now that has a large sum of money. They're not used to investing. So we're just moving that money from a tax, from a savings account, just a regular checking and savings account and moving that into a high yield savings account because mm-hmm. interest rates right now are four and a half, five percent on a high yield savings account. And so because mm-hmm. we're taking them from a less than a quarter of one percent rate of return and bumping them up to five percent, most people would look at that and say, oh, it's it's a 490 basis point increase, 4.9% increase in how much they're getting. And while yes, that is, but that's not the way you should be looking at it. It's a 4,900% increase on the rate of return they're getting. That's what you're looking at. And that's why we also talk about, you know, if if we have a 8% debt and we're able to make 8% on our money, you're better off going and investing that money instead of doing instead of paying it down same thing if you have you know seven percent debt eight percent rate of return on average on your money some people will sit there and say oh well it's only one percent more how much is one percent really going to make a difference and it's it's not it's actually 15 percent more because the seven's a negative percentage and the eight is a positive percentage so it's 15 percent more but it's also over a 200 percent increase on your rate of return on your money right. and so while it may only seem like one percent it's not, it's 15, and that's a 200% increase on the amount of money that you're making. Yeah. So it's sometimes these numbers will look like very small incremental improvements on what you're getting. Because even if you're in a low interest rate environment and you're making a quarter of 1% in the savings and checking account, and you could go to a high yield savings and make 1%, that's a 900% increase on the rate of return on your money. It's yeah. not just 0.9% increase, it's a 900% increase on how much you're making on your money that's those are that's what you're looking at that's what you're actually getting from it yeah the incremental change isn't much but the actual growth change is significant yeah no that's that's a really good tip those two options there for investing and then the high interest or high yield interest savings account is a great first step because i mean five percent is great like you said it's not going to be forever but even for the time being it's kind of like someone dipping their toe in the water of investing and that's great. But we talked about taxes in pretty good intro, I think, what to do with a big tax return, kind of what you want to look for and how much you get back or how much you owe, how to file it for the average individual. 
So I think there's some good information. We could probably go deeper next time, but anything else you want to add? No, I think those are the main things. And as far as where to put it, as far as investments go, there's there's so many options and there's so many viable options. Mm-hmm. So we only touched on you know a small handful of, of what I would consider some of the best options, but there are several other options. And depending on your specific situation, that's when you're going to start to look at other options, what's your risk tolerance level. You know, you can look at 529 plans, annuities. You can look at, you know, stocks, bonds. There's all sorts of options and ways to develop that. Most individuals aren't going to go and invest in one vehicle. They're going to have several vehicles as a part of their retirement plan. So this is where it makes sense to go and talk to somebody who knows what they're doing in order to help you develop that plan. And you can go to somebody who's a financial planner that's fee-based or fee-only, preferably, pay them a fee, and they'll help you put together a plan. And then you only have to pay that fee once, and then you go and execute on the plan. But you have a professional take a look over what you're doing versus Mm -hmm. going and just having somebody manage it completely, and then you pay a management fee. And that's both options are totally viable and totally fine. The question is, what are you most comfortable with and what makes the most sense to you? Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this helps you on your balanced freedom journey. Please share your thoughts in the comments section below. Until next time, stay balanced.